Good morning. That's just an idea of what we can expect on Easter as we praise the Lord together. Um, I, I want to clarify a joke that Mark made, and, and anyone, if anyone should know better than me, you know, sometimes things are funny and sometimes they're not. Um, it would be me, but the joke that he made about the junior high school, I want to clarify, because some of you broke out in spontaneous applause that they weren't going to be in here, but, but you know, that is a joke, and, and one of the things I want to clarify is this. You know, we have provided options for, you know, each and every one of us in some way or another to be able to reach people at the level that they need to be reached so that they can grow in their walk with the Lord. However, that doesn't preclude the fact that if you find that you would rather be here and worship together as a family, we certainly encourage that. And so we just want to let people know they're optional. They're not something that we mandate, that we force. Um, it's available. There was a need that had arisen, and God provided somebody to teach that study. For those of you who are in junior high and you want to be in here with their families, we encourage that. For those of you in elementary school, all the way from, you know, from nursery to, to, uh, to senior adults. You know, we want to be able to worship together as a family. And the wonderful thing about grace is that we have the freedom to make those choices. So I just want to encourage you because, as I said, you know, some things that one person finds funny, another person finds offensive, which leads me to my next point. <laughs> the following is a story that illustrates uh, the importance of being able to recognize and heed certain signs. It says, in light of the rising frequency of human versus bear conflicts, the British Columbia Department of Fish and Wildlife is advising hikers, skiers, hunters, and fishermen to take extra precautions and all others to keep alert for bears while in the woods. Here's their advice. We advise that those pursuing activities in the outdoors should wear noisy little bells on their clothing so as not to startle bears that they are not expecting them. So to kind of give you a heads up that they're, you know, bear the heads up that you're in the area. We also advise recreationalists to carry pepper spray with them in case of an encounter with a bear. It's also a good idea to watch out for fresh signs of bear activity in the woods. It's important for all recreationalists to be able to recognize the difference between black bear dung and grizzly bear dung. Here's how you can tell the difference. Black bear dung is smaller and contains a lot of berries and small animal fur like squirrels and rabbits and things of that nature. While grizzly bear dung, on the other hand, has little bells in it and smells like pepper. <laughs> now that's a sign you don't want to miss. So life is filled with such signs. I was thinking about that as I was preparing this message. And, you know, we've got the slippery when wet sign. We've got the deer crossing sign in certain places of the country. Dangerous curve, steep grade, thin ice, children crossing. Uh, you know, and in California, we have a unique sign. It's a watch for families running across the freeway at border checkpoint signs. Uh, you know, there's just different signs at different times. You know, in the war on Iraq, uh, the coalition forces have dropped how to surrender leaflets, a warning sign of what's to come. Uh, you know, there are warning signs of drug and alcohol abuse and signs of physical ailments and also financial difficulties. There are signs that we need to watch for when it comes to marital problems. All of these are signs that by observing these signs and seeing such signs, we can often avoid potential disaster uh, by taking heed and also by taking corrective action. 
You know, and in a similar way, in the spiritual realm, realm as, as true as it is in the physical world, it's equally true in the, in the spiritual realm where God has graciously provided mankind with countless, countless signs as to his existence, his purposes, his plans, his mercy, uh, his love, and also of his coming judgment. So today we'll begin a short series of messages that will focus on the events that lead up to God's greatest sign to man, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for an outline, what we'd like to do is over the next three Sundays leading up to Easter is look at some of the events that were signs that God had laid out so that those who were looking, looking for those signs would clearly see what it was that God wanted them to do based on what they saw. You know, as Jesus travels towards Jerusalem, the people are fired up by recent events. You know, in fact, there's a, there's a buzz in the air that's even greater than that of, you know, World Series or, you know, an opening day for the Angels or, you know, Super Bowl or NCAA tournament, all of those things combined. You know, people were talking and they were in awe of the signs that they had, that they had witnessed firsthand. You know, Jesus of Nazareth has opened the eyes of the blind. You know, he's opened the ears of the deaf and the lame now walk and the dead have come back to life. And the most recent was that of Lazarus. And man, the crowds were buzzing. They were excited about what they had seen God do in their midst. There were signs that they were looking for to, to that, that God said, hey, listen, look around you and see what I'm doing and take heed and take the appropriate action as to what it is that God would have them do. And so as this momentum swing is taking place, because for years the Jewish people had been oppressed by the Romans, and now they sense that their day of liberation is about to come, to come true. The day of liberation or freedom is at hand. And I can't help but think as we watch constantly what we see happening on the news around us, as we look at what's going on in, in Iraq, and we see the people that are there that are looking for that day where they're finally liberated from the oppression that had taken place for years and years, and the atrocities that had taken place, and, and just the brutalization that had occurred under a dictator. How wonderful it is to finally, ex to, to finally experience liberation and freedom. That's what's going on culturally in the context of what we see happening here. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew 21, we sense that there's something exciting about to take place. The people that recognize the signs that have been laid out before them sense that their day of liberation is at hand. And in Matthew 21, we read of the account that takes place prior to this most incredible week in human history. In Matthew chapter 21, starting with verse 1, we read these words. And it says, And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fall of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid them on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. And the multitudes going before him and those who followed after him were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. 
And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seat of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to him, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast prepared praise for thyself? And, when he, had le- and he left them and went out to the city to Bethany and lodged there. As we read this account, it's not hard to picture the excitement and the enthusiasm, the almost celebration-like atmosphere. In fact, the word is used that says, you know, and the people were stirred up. The passage records for us what many call the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And if you've got your bulletin, the note that I prefer to call it is it's the presentation of the king. It's when Jesus presents himself to his people as the king that God had promised. The triumphal entry is yet really to come because there's a day that Jesus Christ will return. And when he comes again, that will be the day of his triumphal entry. Because here as he goes into the city presenting himself as the king, there's also at the end of the week, as we know, will be the day that he gives his life as a ransom for many. For those who trust in him as Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of their sins. So it certainly, in a sense, is not a triumphal entry in that it is over from the standpoint of there's victory and there's freedom from oppression. But it's a triumphal entry from the standpoint of him presenting himself as the king of the Jews and also the king of the world. And as we look at this, we'll see eventually that as he presents himself, he, he calls it the day of the visitation. The day that God visited his people. And so as we look at this, we realize that, you know, Jerusalem, it's hard to believe when we read this account of such a high that takes place on Sunday will be followed by such a low that will take place on the following Friday. I don't, our family, as our children were younger, we used to like to do the thing of, you know, what was your high today and what was your low today? You know, and it's always a good way to be able to share the things that are going on and to be able to look at those things that we consider a low point, that maybe it's not a low point at all. And in fact, in many ways, the low points in life were the times that we learned the most and, and we gleaned the most information that's life-changing. You know, the highs are the warm, fuzzy feelings that just make you feel good. The lows force you to think about things a little bit more so that we have to take into consideration what it is that God might be teaching us through those times in the valley. You know, I've always told guys that, you know what, it's great to have a mountaintop experience, but if you've ever been on top of a mountain, you know, if you've ever been to Mammoth and you're up there on Dave's Run, if you're a skier, you realize not much is growing up there. You know, it just isn't much happening. But if you're in a valley, you know what, that's where all the growth takes place. So we all want to be on the mountaintop, but I say, hey, praise God for the valleys that he brings us through. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David said, I will fear no evil, for God, you are with me in those times. What a wonderful truth that is. Back to this, Jerusalem borders are overflowing with an estimated 2 to 3 million people who are gathered there for the Passover and all the tombs were whitewashed so that nobody bumped up against them and, and, and were considered ceremonially unclean. Uh, the borders were expanded beyond their normal parameters. And man, there's a lot of stuff going on when you consider 2 to 3 million people in this concentrated area. You know, in fact, on the day of Passover, all 24 priests were on duty to sing and offer sacrifices for the nation. And during the 
this time they continually sang Psalms 113 to Psalm 118, the Hillel or the Praise the Lord Psalms. The first two were sung before the meal and the, and the last four were sung after the meal. And the crowds who knew that it was the responsibility of the priest to sing that praise on Passover, suddenly four days prior to Passover, they all began to sing the praises of God as Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem. And you got to ask the question, what in the world was going on that people would start to sing the praises of God that were normally reserved for the Passover when God delivered his people from the death angel, they passed, over, they passed over the house and they had deliverance. They were singing praises to God as Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem. There's something significant that's taking place and we're going to take a look at six of them if you want to follow through with your notes. Number one is this. In verses 1 through 5, we see that as they approached Jerusalem, had come to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and you immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burdens. When you look at this, we realize the first thing is that the prophecies of the Bible were being fulfilled when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. The things that God had said would happen to help the people identify Jesus as the promised Savior of the world, the one who God had always promised to the nation of Israel. The things that would happen are the prophecies that were being fulfilled right before their eyes. They should have, if they were looking for the consolation of Israel, they should have been looking for the signs that would help them to see and understand that Jesus is and was and always will be who God had promised to send into the world to reconcile man to God. The prophecies of the Bible were being fulfilled. Why did it take place? What was God's purpose? Hey, because it was to fulfill God's word. Everything that God tells us will happen will happen exactly as God said that it will. That his word is trustworthy. His word is reliable. That we can bank on it, so to speak. It validates. This is just another validation of the truthfulness and the dependability, the reliability of the word of God. Everything will happen just as God promises. How do we know the promises of God that have yet to happen will happen? Because the promises that God had made in the past came true exactly as he said that they would. He has set remarkable precedent for us to put our trust and faith in him. We see that in our ongoing relationships with one another. We have no reason to doubt people who are men and women of integrity. If what they tell you they will follow through and do, you have no reason to question whether they're going to do it or not because all throughout your relationship you found that what they said they did when they said they would do it. If they said they would be somewhere at a certain time, they were there. If they said they would do something, they, they would do it. If somebody says, you know, the check's in the mail and you, you know, every other time they've said it, it's there, then you know what? You continue can, to believe them. Their integrity is intact until the moment comes where they violate their integrity. But the reality of the word of God is this. Everything that God has said in the past that would come true has come true as he said that it will. And everything in the future will come true exactly to the point that God says it will. And the reason is simple. For God is not like man. 
He cannot lie. In him there is no darkness at all. If God says it, you can believe it. In John 14, Jesus said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house there are many mansions. And I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you will be. And you know what? And if that wasn't true, I wouldn't tell you that. Why? Because I cannot lie. What God says is true is true. What he says will happen in the future will happen according to his plan and his purpose. And what we have a problem with is not so much believing God's promises, but it's in his timing of those promises. You know, as Paul said, I'm confident in this very thing, that when I'm absent from my body, I'll be present with the Lord. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. Jesus said, where I am, there you shall be. Paul said, I'm confident of this, the day that I die, that I'll be with Jesus. I'm confident of that. Jesus said, why do you stand in space looking up into heaven? This, the angel said, this Jesus who went up the same way that he went up, he will come again. The promises of God. Everything that God has promised for you and I in the future will happen as sure as everything that he promised in the past came true as we read scripture. And I'll tell you what, that is comforting to me. It gets me through the moment in time when I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, David said. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Man, that's good stuff. And it's relevant. And it's practical. And it's real for today. Why did this event take place as it did? Because it was fulfillment of the word of God and it fulfilled the promises of God. The quotation is from verse 5 from Zechariah 9.9. If you go back and look at that, go back a couple of books. You can go backwards to Matthew, Malachi, and Zechariah is the quickest way to get to it. But in Zechariah 9.9, this is the quotation that's found in Scripture. And what's important is we've got to look at that quotation, that verse that's there, and compare it to what Jesus says in Matthew 21. And the reason it's important is very simple. Look at this. It says in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, if you carefully look at the two different quotes, you'll notice there's some things that are obviously missing. And what's missing is the references to rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. And it has to do with the fact that there would be salvation. And the reason there, there was the, the omission of rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, is because our Lord is not coming into Jerusalem for that time of rejoicing. He will come again and that rejoicing will take place. That will take place at his second coming, as I've mentioned. Also as omitted is that he is just in having salvation. The word salvation has the thought of victory, which will be fulfilled also at his second coming. You know, the conclusion to be drawn from these two portions of Scripture is that his second coming, there will be at that point a true triumphal entry. You notice that Jesus did the same thing in Luke chapter 4 when he opened up the scroll and he picked a point in the, in the, in the, in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 61. But in Luke chapter 4, if you go back to the Gospel of Luke, You'll notice that Jesus went and found a specific place that he wanted to read in the scroll of Isaiah. And in Luke chapter 4, it says in, in verse 17, And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. 
And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stopped at that point and he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant. Well, if you read through Isaiah 61, what immediately follows in that verse is he talks about the, the, the coming of God's judgment. And Jesus, if you recall, if you've read through the book of John in John chapter 3, says, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. I came to save it because the world has already been condemned. So Jesus was announcing, I've come to do what God has called and sent me to do. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He came to save us from sin and the consequence and the judgment that's to come. There's a day coming where he will come and he will judge all of humanity. And so the warning sign that is there is that, you know what, we need to respond today to the, to the message, the invitation to come to the cross and trust in Christ. Because the moment that there will be a day and time where that invitation will no longer be extended. Uh, an illustration I use when I deal with men who are in professional sports is that there's a window of opportunity often when they negotiate their contracts in the free agent market. There's, an, there's a window where there's, an, there's a, an offer that's placed on the table. And say, here's our offer. A lot of times they'll counter offer. They'll go back and forth. And with God, you know what? There is no counter offer. As God, he says, this is my offer to you. Take it or leave it. It's on the table for only so long, and God in his graciousness determines how long that invitation sits there. But the offer is there. And many athletes will look at it, and they'll de decide, do I want this offer, not want the offer? They try to negotiate, counter-negotiate, all those things. But on a take-it-or-leave-it offer, it makes it very simple. You either take it or leave it. And the window of opportunity then shuts. It's only there so long. And oftentimes, they may lay that offer out to three different people at the same time. And at, at the, once somebody says yes, then the other offers go away. I praise God that God's not like that. That he extends an offer to you, he extends an offer to me, he extends an offer to many at the same time. And he's not saying there's only so much more room in heaven because once you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior for the forgiveness of your sins, the power of his resurrection, oh, then I'll take the offer off the table for you. See, but we don't know how long the offer will be there. And today is the day of the Lord. Today is the day of the Spirit. Whosoever calls upon the Lord will be saved. But we can never take for granted or lightly the offer that God has made. So the day, of, the day that we see happening here, it's assumed when we go back to Matthew 21, it's assumed that Jesus riding in on the colt or, or you know, on, on, the, on the colt is somehow or another paramount to his humility. But the reality is, as you go through the Old Testament, kings rode into town on donkeys. It would be like today, us being, you know, driven up to a site and jumping out of a limo. You know, who's that? Who's that coming? There's a limo. Oh, and the door opens up and you go, I don't know. But, uh, you know, whatever. You know, it's, it's our family renting it for our 25th anniversary. It's always fun, you know, when you're driving down the freeway. One time we did, our, ch our children rented us a limo. You know, we were married 25 years before we got to ride in the limo. And it just is mind-boggling to me how many kids go to limos for their high school dances. Hey, if you're a high school student out there, life's going to go down here real quick for you after that. You peaked way too soon. But anyway, back to this. 
I digress. You know, every now and then I do that. But at the same time, when we go back, we look at Jesus rides into town on a donkey, announcing himself, presenting himself as the king of Israel. And everybody knew it. And they were excited. You know, when we look at the the fulfillment of Zechariah 9, we see that, you know, this little animal was ridden by kings. You know, the donkey was an animal of peace. The horse is an animal of war. And when you read the book of Revelation, you see that the horses are being ridden and Jesus is on a horse. But he came to Jerusalem as a king to present a peace offering to the people that those who would trust in him would now have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He offers the same peace today. But there's a time coming where he'll be on a horse and he'll judge all those who rejected the offer that God put on the table. A second prophecy that was being fulfilled, turn back with me to Daniel chapter 9. Now, Daniel chapter 9, you're going to have to stay with me just a little bit. For those of you who like sermonettes preached by preacherettes to Christianettes, this is going to really hurt you. This is going to cause some damage. But we're going to go ahead and try it anyway. But in Daniel chapter 9, we read another prophecy as it relates to the day that we are reading about here in Matthew 21. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 through 26, we read this. And I'll just tell you right now, if this doesn't fire you up, you got wet wood. (laughs) Daniel 9, 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing, here it's talking about, you're to know the sign. You know, you were to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. It says, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood, even to the end where there will be war, desolations are determined. Now, as we look at this, this prophecy that takes place, let's go down through it and look at it slowly. It says, you are to know, or therefore, or then, you are to know and discern. You're to read and see the sign that God is making, er, giving us. And he's saying, from the command that begins the prophecy, that's to command the rebuilding of Jerusalem. The key word is moat and plaza, or some translations say street and wall. But the bottom line is that there were four commands. Cyrus the Persian gave the first command to rebuild the temple, and that's in 2 Chronicles 36, Ezra 1, 1 through 4, and also Ezra 6, 1 through 5. That command was given in 538 B.C. It did not include the wall. It was a command to rebuild the temple. Number two, the second command was given by Darius, and all he did was confirm the decree of Cyrus, and you can read that in Ezra chapter 6, the same thing, 6 through 12. And that was in 519 B.C., The third command for the rebuilding of Jerusalem was by Artaxerxes, and it's recorded in Ezra 7, 11 through 26. It was in 458 B.C. Now, the fourth command was by Artaxerxes Longimanus, and and this was given to Nehemiah in 445 B.C. So if you turn to Nehemiah chapter 2, we see the command to rebuild the wall where we see the wall and the moat around the city of Jerusalem. 
In Nehemiah chapter 2, 1 through 8, it says, And it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I, speaking of Nehemiah, uh, took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had, been not, I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Nehemiah took his life in his hands by being, you know, down or his countenance was down in the presence of the king as a cupbearer. His responsibility, talk about an interesting job. If some of you think you have a bad job, how's this for a job? Nehemiah as a cupbearer was responsible to taste the food of the king before he ate it in case someone was trying to poison him. That's a bad job. Because if you do your job well, longevity is not something you're looking for. So you're looking for, you know, you, know, you want your, your IRA vested in the maybe first six months. So he says, I said to the king, if it please you, that, and, and if your servant has found favor before you, send to me, me to Judah to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it pleased the king, let letters be given for me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that, we, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the king of the keepers, king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates and for the fortress which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. And what a great story it is of God's provision as Nehemiah goes and rebuilds the wall around Jerusalem to protect the city and this command that takes place we learn right here that it was in the 25th day of the month of Elu and 52 days Nehemiah 6:15 says that the wall was rebuilt in the second chapter we're told in the month of Nisan without giving it a day always means the first of the month so anytime you're reading through scripture and it gives you a month without giving a day it always means the first of Nisan was March 14th according to our calendar today we know exactly when it was. There's no question or doubt about it. So the command to, get, to rebuild the wall, and this is important, was March 5th, 14th, 445 B.C. In verse 25, we see that from that date of the command until Messiah the Prince is 69 weeks or of seven years each or a total of 483 years. The way this verse is phrased back in... Matthew 21 and also here in Daniel 9:25 Messiah the prince is a public event which all the Jews will know about it's not something God did in secret it was a public presentation of the king of Israel now how does that relate to Daniel 9:26 through 27 which written 537 years before Christ now, for all of you who love mathematics, personally, that was never my stronghold. You know, basic math, got it. The rest of this stuff, hey, thank God for people that know what they're doing. And, uh, but the reason I break it out is this. Until Messiah the Prince would come, according to Daniel, the prophecy in Daniel, it would be 483 years. And so when we look at this triumphal entry or the presentation of Jesus as the king, Jesus said, this is the day of your visitation. 
This is what God had told you to be looking for the day where God would present me as king of the Jews. In fact, above his cross, Jesus, king of the Jews. Now, here's the way this works. If you multiply 483 years, 483 times 360, the calendar they used was 360 days long. All you have to do is read the days of Noah and also Revelation. It always referred to 30 days. Our calendar system that we're familiar with today changed it to 30, you know, 32 days, 31 days, 30 days, whatever. And uh, math problem, I know, 32. I know, that's it. Yeah. I'm just getting excited to get to the next part. But uh, if you time 483, here we go, do the math. 483 times 360, you get 173,880 days. If you divide it by 365 days according to our calendar, and don't forget 116 leap year days and the difference between March 14th to whenever the triumphal entry is, you don't count 1 BC and 1 AD twice. The answer is this. On the triumphal entry day was Sunday, April 6th, AD 32. The point is this, that God is always on time. He's never late, he's never early, he is on time. And the reality of the promises of God is that they could have known those who were students of the word of God, they could have known from Daniel chapter 9 exactly how many days it would be until the presentation of the Messiah. And those who studied the laws of God and were open to the signs that God had given were excited and praising God because Messiah had arrived. Now, their mistake was they thought that Jesus came to set up his kingdom then and there. And they were excited and exuberant about it. That's why they, they laid their garments on, his, on, a, on, the, on the donkey, on the colt that he would ride. That's why they laid palm branches on the street before him. That's why they praised, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is the name of the Lord. That's why they were praising him as king. And we know they were praising him as king because those around him were indignant that Jesus would allow people to praise him as the king of the Jews as the one God was to send. So when we look at this, the prophecies of God are being fulfilled at this moment in time back to Matthew chapter 21. God is keeping his word and trying to reach the Jews one last time. The day of his visitation was at hand. And he wept because he said to them, if you had only known, today could have been the day that God's kingdom was ushered in, but you rejected the signs that God had given. You didn't take heed. You didn't respond appropriately. You rejected God's invitation of forgiveness in Christ. You know, the irony here is that the religious leaders or the experts in the word of God, the scholars of the scriptures failed to examine the scriptures to see if God was behind all that they were witnessing. They had confused priorities. God's will must always come first in our life. And so... As we consider those signs, there's danger signs that exist for us today. And all too often, we allow our own agenda to conflict with God's. God, what is it that you want to do? What are we seeing? What are we observing? What does this mean to me as it relates to your plans and your purposes, your direction? And what do you want me to do? Versus, wait, that doesn't fit into my plans. 
And see, because the religious leader said, God, your plans don't fit into our plans, they missed the sign. They missed the sign that said, bridge out ahead. You better heed the warning. Before we move to the next point, the question that God laid on my heart as I was, as I was going through this is, you know, do I really trust God and take him at his word? Or do I struggle in different areas that somehow or another he's just, you know, he's trustworthy in some areas, but no, I'm not sure I trust him in every one. You know, and I, and I read this and recognize it. Man, I mean, think about that. To the day, to the minute, to the hour. 173,880 days and Messiah will be presented to you as your king. Every day is appointed for us when yet we never live the day. Every hair on our head, God knows. He knows our thoughts when we lie down and when we rise up. He knows your thoughts as you're sitting here today. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. It's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. Nothing is outside the sovereignty of God. Do you trust him in every area of your life? His word is reliable. It's trustworthy. And if the people would have trusted the word of God, they would have recognized Jesus as their savior. Number two, we read in verses six through 11 that the people were filled with messianic hope. I mean, these people were fired up, man. They saw the signs. They knew what it was that they were seeing unfold right before them. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them in verse 6 and brought the donkey and the colt and laid them on their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude, think about this. I just said there's two to three million people that were there. And most of the multitude, we're told, began to lay their garments out. And most of them spread their garments in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the roads. And the multitudes going before him, those who followed out after were crying out saying, Hosanna, it's Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered into Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, man. There was a buzz saying, who is this? Man, who is this that's making this entry? Who is this that stirred up millions of people to lay down their garments and get excited about what was going on? Who is this? And they said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Man, they were fired up. And the reason they were so fired up, all you got to do is read John chapter 11 because that was the turning point in Jesus' ministry when he raised Lazarus from the dead. It said at that moment in time, the leaders conspired to put him to death. And the reason was simple, because people started to believe and trust in him as Savior of the world. You know, and here's the problem with man. Man knows you can't have two kings. If men want us to worship them, they know we can't do that and worship God. Our allegiance is to God first, and then we respect authority as it's been established by God. But at the end of the day, the question is this. You know what? You can't have two gods. So men realize that, man, you know what? If these people start worshiping Jesus, then we're out of the loop. They didn't have the same take as John the Baptist did 
when he said, my whole purpose in being here is, is to prepare the way so that when Jesus, the Messiah, comes, no, no longer will be about me and the preparation for him, but because he did his job so well, the moment he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, all the people that had been following him, they went to follow Jesus. You know, there's nobody on the face of the earth that should have people follow them at the expense of their relationship with the Lord, and that includes me or any other pastor or any other person in any kind of, quote, religious setting. The bottom line is this. If I am doing what's right before God, then you should fall more in love with Jesus and not me. You should follow him. Fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. Consider him who endured such hostility from men so that we don't grow weary and we don't grow faint. But it's all about Jesus. It's not about anybody else but him. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. Because if you're fixing them on people, they'll disappoint you every time. But you know what? Jesus Christ will never fail us. While we're faithful, faithless, he's faithful. Keep your eyes on him. What happened was they started to follow Jesus, man. I mean, they saw the signs. They saw the signs. Who is this man who raises people from the dead? It's never been done in the history of the world. Who is this man that can cause the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear? It's all about Jesus. Follow him. He's the promised one of God. He's the only hope for our salvation. He's the only one that can forgive us of our sins. Go to the cross and trust in him and in him alone. See, the power of his resurrection What's so exciting about Easter and I look forward to it is that, man, I mean, it's the greatest sign God ever gave the man, the sign of Jonah. After three days, he will be raised up from the dead. I don't care what anybody else believes in the world. They cannot top what God did in raising Jesus Christ from the dead. He is alive today, and because we go to him, because he is alive, he can forgive our sins, and he can give us eternal life. Who wants to follow a dead leader? We want to follow one who is risen. And the Bible tells us he is risen indeed. And human history tells us he is risen indeed. And the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus Christ is alive. These people were pumped up. We should be fired up. We should be pumped up. We should be stoked. We should be excited. We should be telling the world the good news that, you know what? Hey, we're all sinners. None are righteous. No, not one. We're all in deep trouble. We're all on our way to hell. But thank God he loved us and he intervened and he sent Jesus Christ to die in our place, your place, my place. If we trust in him and believe in the power of his resurrection, you shall be saved. Repent from sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The simplicity of the gospel at the nonsense of the religious community in our world today that complicates it to the point where somehow it's about what we can do to become right with God. We can't do anything except trust in Christ and him crucified. Man, they were fired up. They were excited about it. They were yelling in the streets, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Man, and if that wasn't enough, look at the next thing that Jesus does, and that is the place for prayer was cleansed once again. And notice this. Jesus entered the temple, and he cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And if, and if the leaders weren't infuriated yet, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a robber's den. My house? Jesus claiming the temple is his house, equal with the father in my father's house? My house? Man, if they weren't infuriated yet, 
It just is getting worse. Because notice this. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. They weren't allowed in the temple. And they came into the temple. And he healed them. It aggravated him all the time. Jesus did compassionate things for those that other men didn't feel were worthy. But Jesus has compassion on us all. Every one of us. He reaches out. He's come to seek and to save that which was lost. And you know what? Lost is lost. I don't care if you're 50 miles off target or a block off target. If you're off target, you're off target. And I don't care if you jump off a pier trying to get to Catalina from Huntington Beach and you get 30 feet off before you drop into the water and somebody else can get 40 feet off. What I'm thinking is you've still fallen short of your destination. And that's, and that's the gospel. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus, he, he, the place for prayer was cleansed. He says, my house equaling himself with the Father. Since, you know, today, the temple of the Lord is the Christian's body. In 1 Corinthians 6, we're told, you know what, we're to glorify him in our earthly body. We're to live a life that's worthy or, or walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We're to live in such a way we reflect to the world around us that we're truly born again, that old things have passed away and all things have become new. We've got to be careful that we don't desecrate the temple as was being desecrated here by the way that we live our life. If there's anything in us that's unworthy before God, we're to confess our sin and He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to recognize that the same way they violated the temple of God is the same way you and I violate the temple of God when we do that which is wrong before Him. God says if, we're, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to take heed that we worship God in a proper manner. We need to take heed that there's nothing in our life that was similar to what we see happening here where Jesus cleansed the temple of those who were desecrating God's place of worship. Jesus demonstrated his authority by cleansing the temple. Hey, who do you think you are? Hey, it's my house. I'll clean it up. You know, and that's what it comes down to. It's my house. I'll clean it up. He didn't worry about being politically correct or unpopular because he sets the standard. He determines right and wrong, and he fulfilled the scripture again by doing what we see take place. So far, we've seen the prophecies of the Bible were being fulfilled in this presentation of the king. The people were filled with messianic hope, man. They knew what was going on, and they were excited because they thought Jesus was going to liberate them from their oppressors. And this particular point was the Roman government. The place for prayer was cleansed, and the power of God was displayed. We see that in verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Again, we see the authority of Jesus demonstrated. The blind and the lame came into the temple and Jesus healed them in front of two to three million witnesses. Could you imagine the talk that was going on as these people were going in, you know, and they were coming out whole? I mean, that had to be absolutely incredible to see. And they recognized the sign. John the Baptist, when he was doubting that Jesus was truly the Messiah, he was told by the disciples who came to Jesus, go back and tell John what? The blind can see, the lame are healed, you know, the deaf can hear. 
you know, proclaim the favorable day of the Lord, you know, and, and John was reminded, hey, all the signs that you saw. And in fact, if you, you know, look at in John chapter 20, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the end of the gospel of John, see the purpose of these signs. The purpose was of the signs that Jesus performed was for one reason and one reason only. Not only did it, did it comfort those who were in affliction in their humanity or in their physical life, but more importantly, in verse 30, we're told, many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. These things are recorded that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Savior of the world, the Son of the living God. The whole purpose of everything we see in Scripture is to help you and I believe today the same thing that they saw. If you remember what Jesus said to Thomas, hey, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Thomas said, I'm not going to believe till I stick my finger in the wounds in your wrist and stick my fist in your, in your, in your side. Then I'll believe. He said, blessed are those who will come after you who, though they did not see, they believe. Because the word of God has recorded it for us. Jesus said to the man who was waiting final judgment uh, in Sheol, he said, let me go back and warn my family that this is all true. And Jesus said, they're not going to believe you if you came back from the dead. And you know why? Because they had Moses and the laws and the prophets. They had the word of God. And if they don't trust God at his word, they're certainly not going to believe your crazy story. And isn't that true today? If you and I can't believe the word of God, then there's nobody left to believe. There's no one left to believe. Number five, the praise of God was encouraged. Back in Matthew again, chapter 21, the praise of God was encouraged. Notice this as Matthew 21 records that, man, you know what? Everyone was praising God. In verses 15 and 16, how awesome it is to see that, but when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. They became upset. They didn't join in and praise him and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, thou hast prepared praise for thyself. Luke's gospel records this. Hey, you know what? They told, the, the, the religious leaders told Jesus to tell the crowds to shut up and stop it. And he said, you know what? And even if they stopped it, the very stones would sing out the praise of God. Everything is in God's control. No one can tell us to stop praising God. No one. We are saved to serve him. We are saved to praise him. We love him because we know what he's done for us. And God help us if we ever get to the point where we think we need to become more politically correct rather than praise our Savior. You know, we live in a world today where people can praise and talk about whatever it is they want to talk about. But when you mention Jesus, somehow or another, we're being offensive. How much more offensive to you or I is it that someone would tell us to worship a tree or something similar to that at the expense of our Savior who died on a tree to forgive us of our sins. You know what? Even when you and I don't praise him, all of God's creation will. And all I say is this, we might as well join in. Because you know what? We know we have tasted the kindness of God and we know that he is good. Sixth and final thing, the plan of God for his people was announced. And to get a better feel for that in closing, look at Luke chapter 19. Matthew, Mark, Luke 19. And we'll close with this. Luke 
It says that when Jesus approached, he saw the city and he wept over it. Saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come, and they'll come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children with you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And what he is saying is a fulfillment of Daniel 9 where it talks about that you know the Messiah would be cut off at his crucifixion and later it talks about the fact the enemies of God, the enemies of the Jews will rise up and they'll judge the Jewish people for the rejection of Jesus Christ as their Savior. I've been asked this question. I'm going to close with this as it relates to what's going on in the world around us. But we have people often asking the question, you know what, does God, you know, does God allow war? And the answer is very simple. Yes, He does. And the reason for it, we found all through the pages of Scripture, is that God allowed the enemies of Israel to discipline them for their rejection of their king and Lord and for the sinfulness of their life. James 4 tells us what is the source of quarrels among you? Is it not your own selfishness or your own sinfulness? We live in a sinful and fallen world and because of that, war is an outcome, a consequence of sin nature. There are times where God uses war to be able to discipline his people who will be oppressed because of the consequence of their sin. Read the history of the nation of Israel in Nehemiah chapter 9. God often used the enemies of Israel to discipline his people, to bring them to repentance of their sin, and then bring them back to a renewed relationship with him. We live in a similar day and age where because of the sinfulness of man and the selfishness of man, and the fact is, you know what? Sin will not remain within a confined border. Sin is like cancer. It is not content to remain in a specific part of your body. We must eradicate it. You know, it must eradicate it, you know, violently at times, but it's necessary to protect the rest of the body. We're here today because many men and women have given their lives over the course of human history so that you and I would have the freedom that we do today to worship and praise God in this place today. To be able to open the word of God and to study it and take heed to the signs that God has given us. I'm troubled by a world that looks around and so quick to judge and not recognizing and understanding that peace comes at a great price. Because of the sinfulness of man, we must recognize and understand. If that was true, then why have law enforcement? Why do we need police officers? Why do we need a judicial system? And the reason is very simple, because the heart of man is evil before God. And continually trying to do those things that hurt other people, someone has to step up and do what is right to protect those around us who would be destroyed by those who would be evil-minded. Someone has to stand up for righteousness. It's easy to put our head in the sand and pretend it doesn't involve us, but it does. We must always stand up for those who are helpless Jesus Christ was the greatest example of one who stood in the gap for those who could not help themselves. I close and I challenge you to consider that God warns us, as he did here, one day the nation was judged by Rome 
in 70 AD, the consequences of their rejection of Jesus as Messiah was fulfilled according to Daniel chapter 9. They had the freedom to choose, to choose Jesus as their Savior or to reject him. The consequence of rejection was that they were oppressed continually by their enemy. The consequences of rejecting Jesus Christ today is that you will suffer an eternity separated from God in a place that was never designed for men, but for Satan and his evil demons. But Jesus Christ came to free us from the oppressor, the oppressor of Satan and the oppression of sin. Have you come to respond to his grace today? Do you know him as your savior? Have you repented of your sin and gone to the cross and trusted in Jesus as your savior? His death on the cross and the power of his resurrection. Do you know him as Lord today? If not, today is the day of the Lord and whosoever will call upon him shall be saved. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the blessings that we see, the signs that you've given that as we heed the signs and we take appropriate action, there's blessing at the end of the road. And I also thank you for the warning signs that warn if we do not heed your warning that there's consequence and judgment for that. God, I pray for anyone who's here or listening to this message that's not sure of their relationship with you, that they would repent of their sin because none of us are righteous, no, not one. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God, there's not anyone here that meets your standard of perfection. That they would recognize their need to repent, to turn from sin and to turn to God. Believing what you say, that you sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross. Three days later, raising him from the dead. That if we would believe in him, we shall be saved. That we would trust in his death and the power of his resurrection on our behalf. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God, you've raised him from the dead. You tell us that we shall be saved. For it's with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness. And with his mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. Lord, we thank you for this account of the presentation of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. It is our prayer that each and every person that we come in contact with would hear this message through our lips and that you would be praised and you would be brought glory by their response. And we just thank you in Christ's name. Amen.